death is the only 100% guaranteed thing that's going to occur. This is Aaron Baldishweiler. However, it is something that most people, including myself, um, to a degree, you know, really fear. She lives in Washington State. She has two teenagers, and she loves to write. My name is Erin Baldeschweiler. I am 49 years old, and last year I was diagnosed with triple negative metastatic stage 4 breast cancer. When she was diagnosed in March of last year, she was given two years. And with the little time that she has left, she is suing the Drug Enforcement Administration, or the DEA, for denying her the right to try something called psilocybin something that could potentially make dying easier. Throughout this podcast, I've explored a lot of big questions with people who are facing their mortality. Some people, including Aaron, have mentioned fear of dying. In this episode, you're going to hear a bit about this groundbreaking case against the DEA, and you're going to hear about psilocybin, how it has a lot of potential to treat things like fear, depression, hopelessness at the end of life. And you're going to hear from Erin and why it's important to her to be a part of this case. So psilocybin, it's the psychoactive component in psychedelic mushrooms. Psilocybin is currently being studied in clinical trials and has shown that when it's used in a therapeutic and highly controlled environment, it has the potential to greatly reduce existential distress that can come along with facing death. This is a big deal, because right now, there are no good ways of treating this specific type of trauma. One of the ways it can help is because when a person is on psilocybin in the right setting, a process of letting go of your ego can occur. In that time of letting that go, um, you're, you're open to a lot more uh, awe. That's Aaron's palliative care doctor, Dr. Agarwal. I'm Sunil Kumar Agarwal. I am a physician and geographic medical researcher. I myself am a palliative care and hospice uh, board certified specialist and, and also in rehabilitation, physical medicine rehabilitation. Dr. Agarwal co-directs and co-founded the Advanced Integrative Medical Science Institute, or AIMS, in Seattle, Washington. He and his team do a lot of research in a variety of different fields, including oncology, pain, and palliative care. And I have a special interest in integrative medicine and uh, psychedelic-assisted therapies and uh, cannabinoid-assisted therapies as well. Together, Aaron, Dr. Agarwal, another one of Dr. Agarwal's patients, and a team of lawyers are suing the DEA for access to psilocybin under what are called right to try laws. There are many studies in recent years that have shown that psilocybin therapy is immediately effective in relieving anxiety and depression in patients with advanced illness. This is Catherine Tucker, the lead attorney on the case. She is the co-chair of the psychedelic practice group at Emerge Law Group, She's the director of the End of Life Liberty Project, and she has worked for decades advocating on behalf of terminally ill patients. I reached out to Catherine to help me better understand the case. 
And so Dr. Agarwal, who provides palliative care to patients with advanced illness, primarily cancer, and a number of his patients with cancer have wanted to be able to access psilocybin for therapeutic use. And psilocybin sits on Schedule 1 of the Controlled Substances Act and cannot be accessed, uh, certainly without permission, from the DEA. So on behalf of Dr. Agarwal and his patients, I approached the DEA to find out how it would accommodate these relatively new laws enacted by the state of Washington and the federal government called right to try laws, which are designed to allow patients with advanced illness to have access to certain investigational drugs that have not been yet approved because they remain in an investigational stage. But the idea is that these patients don't have the time to wait for the slow process of new drug approval, and they should be allowed access early. So the DEA received our inquiry and responded by rejecting the possibility that access would be allowed under the right to try laws, saying that there was no authority for the agency to permit that under the Controlled Substances Act. So we believe that that is a mistaken agency determination, that it is an error, and that in fact the agency has that authority and in fact has the duty to allow access to psilocybin for therapeutic use under the right to try laws. So we have taken the DEA to court to litigate that issue. When I first learned about this case in a Rolling Stone article, what I wondered most about was Erin. What drives her to do something so radical, like suing the DEA, especially when her time is limited? We'll get to my conversation with Erin where I ask her this question a little later. But first, let's go back to Dr. Agarwal to learn more about psilocybin and how it might actually help people who are dying. So it's a, it's a chemical ingredient in these mushrooms that uh, seems to be one of the active principles involved. Psilocybin and something called psilocin um, are involved in its unique effects on the brain and nervous system and psyche that uh, are really important in, in, um, in healing work, medical work, especially when it comes to life-threatening illness um, and uh, various psychiatric and neurological conditions. So just to give you some quick background, research into psilocybin and how it might help people heal began in the 50s and 60s. It showed a lot of promise for the treatment of things like depression, addiction, and psychological and physical pain in cancer patients. But then in the early 1970s, psilocybin was classified as a Schedule I substance and made illegal. And so the research in the U.S. came to a halt. But then in the past couple decades, it re-emerged at institutions like UCLA, NYU, Johns Hopkins, 
and the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And once they published some really groundbreaking results about psilocybin's therapeutic use, public perception also started to change. Well, can you uh, just tell me a little bit about some of the findings from these clinical trials that have been done um, in relation to, you know, depression and terminal illness? And Yeah, um, I think the, the main takeaway is that for different stages of, of major depressive disorder, for example, um, severities like uh, psilocybin-assisted therapy sessions, Done with proper screened patients, with in and with preparation, with uh, guidance, and uh, after integration visits, and doing a couple of cycles of that, sometimes two or three, or sometimes even less. But around that, that has a pretty remarkable um, positive impact on depression and mood that seems to last for quite some time, more than a year. Mm. Um, and this has been seen in numerous. In numerous rep- replicable studies that have been done now, uh, and then specifically also in demoralization and anxiety associated with life-threatening illness, mostly cancer, um, there's been a lot of uh, there's been also the same type of results found in those populations as well. Long-lasting, um, significant changes in demoralization, mood, suicidality, wish for haste and death. It seems. They're still doing analyses out of some of the the data that was collected in some of these these centers. I want to jump in here, because when we're talking about psilocybin-assisted therapy, it's important to know that there's a lot that goes into it. Psilocybin and other psychedelics do have the potential to cause an adverse reaction. This is why the safety of the setting, being clear about intentions, and being with someone who knows what they're doing really matters. But when this level of thought and preparation goes into the experience, and it's used in a medically supervised environment, psilocybin can be very safe. When you talk about demoralization um, associated with a terminal illness, can you just kind of go into what that is? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's sort of what it sounds like, you know. Uh, yeah. Um, it's these are all different like ways to uh, talk about existential distress. Uh-huh. Um, associated with life-threatening illness, like uh, could be just a sense of loss of meaning, loss of purpose, loss of hope, loss of a loss of sense of autonomy. I would say um, that can be accompanied with like a wish for a hastened death or just a sense of meaninglessness. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's like that. Um, you know, it, it needs to be distinguished in some ways from you know what we call depressive disorders. Mm-hmm. It's different than that. It's certainly there can be mood issues that are like depression in there and anxiety, but it's a, it's a, it's really around this larger, I would say sort of like a psychos, psycho spiritual, um, health indicator or, you know, an, um, a decline in those areas mm-hmm. that is, uh, pervasive and, and very difficult to address. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what is it then about the experience of being on psilocybin that really helps someone who is dying? Well, I, I mean, I think that's, this is really, um, you know, you can have, you have your like neuropharmacological answer to that and then, and then other types of ways of knowing and understanding. But I think um, 
it's really um, about uh, like a process of letting go. Um, we think there's a lot of um, value in in what we sometimes people have called this egolytic therapy, ego death, where you you change how you are your current sort of constitution of what what your you know your egoic um, model is just for a few hours. You do come back, but in that time of letting that go, um, you're you're open to a lot more uh, awe and a sense of um, grandeur, uh, connectedness. People describe all kinds of mystical experiences, um, uh, feelings of of, uh, inner bliss and joy and union and uh, connectedness or other types of deeper insights. And I think that experience itself is very therapeutic. And I think the sense of letting go of that ego um, can, can help if you are, um, you've been told that you're, you have a terminal illness. It's sort of a natural um, fear, like, that. Will, will you be able to do that? Will you be able to handle the uh, process of the developmental phases that, that we know are important in a good, good death? Um, and maybe this is a tool to help sort of begin that process without uh, death. It's a very safe. People don't die on psilocybin, um, but, but they, they may experience um, a sense of death. Uh, and, and, you know, I think that's, that's what I think is happening. And so there's an experiential dimension. There's this neurological dimension where you're, you're uh, creating new plasticity in the brain um, with these newer, new experiences and linking them to your current uh, current networks, so you might be able to fire new new networks and then the, wire those neurons together, uh, neurons that fire together, wire together, as they say, and mm-hmm. and through the integration work, you're kind of building that in, and and that's maybe part of how it's having these long-lasting effects with just one or two treatment sessions, is because of this integrative care and really using that neuroplastic window after the treatment to to really. Um, facilitate a, a change in over, you know, lasting changes. I'm just so fascinated by these big existential questions, questions about meaning and purpose. What interests me most about them, though, is how they play out in people. Like, for example, Erin. What are her fears? Why is she interested in psilocybin? And what does this case mean to her? How has her sense of meaning changed since her diagnosis? And now, my conversation with Erin Baldeschweiler. So I was hoping we could start with your diagnosis. Um, can you give me an idea of just what your life was like when you first heard the news of your breast cancer diagnosis? Yeah, it was devastating, to be honest with you. It was, uh, of course, a shock. I was 48 years old at the time. I had just come off of, um, you know, some challenging previous years um, prior to that with the death of a dear friend, a divorce. And this was just kind of one more blow Mm -hmm. that was uh, coming across my path. So it was, yeah, it was upsetting to say the least. Yeah. You were just going through so much at the time. What thoughts went through your head when you found out that it was terminal? Yeah, so I'm going to be very blunt and colorful and uh, honest. I 
was on the phone. I did a, a conference call with the pathologist and a good friend that I mentioned earlier that that was in the medical professional field um, and myself, you know, just to to get the results of the test. And once I got them and that pathologist dropped off, I I said to my friend, what the fuck? Seriously, this is what I'm being tested with now. This, you know, this is what I have to face. And it was such a shock and a blow to all of my senses, you know, to my mental, emotional, and now physical. I really felt it was, this is my, now my physical test. You know, I've, I've been through the ringer um, the last few years and this is what I'm facing now. And it was heart-wrenching. It was, it was... <laughs> It was depressing, I'm not going to lie, you know, and incredibly, incredibly upsetting. So those were the thoughts. Those were my words. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was a thing. I'm so sorry that you went through all that and are still going through so much. What attracted you to the idea of psilocybin? Well, you know, it really, to kind of step back from the psilocybin, it was really how I came to meet Ames Institute, which uh, was kind of a referral from a second opinion that I received um, during my cancer diagnosis and uh, my personal attraction, if you will, to integrative medicines, any kind of additional therapies or modalities that can help not necessarily cure my cancer, uh, but help uh, just to alleviate all of the external uh, kind of existential stresses, emotional, mental, spiritual, um, that I was feeling, you know, with, with this diagnosis, uh, in addition to, to possibly other integrative, you know, therapies that, that may aid in, in the traditional treatment of cancer, you know, cause, um, kind of want to beat it. I want to stick around longer than the two years that they were statistically giving me when I was initially diagnosed. Yeah. And, and what sort of other more standard or traditional treatments have you had? Uh, so <clears throat> cancer is an interesting beast. Uh, of course, it, it affects every individual very uniquely. And um, depending on the, the diagnosis and the biopsies um, will determine what treatments are really even available, you know. And for myself, in the biopsies, there was a protein with which I had a hundred percent expression, and it was a um, there is an immunotherapy that is shown to be very promising for this particular cancer protein. So basically, I was prescribed chemotherapy every week along with this immunotherapy every two weeks, mm-hmm. and I personally freaked out at the chemo. Um, it, I, I was diagnosed literally right in line with COVID, you know, mm. a, a global pandemic. And the last thing I wanted to do was compromise my immune system in any way, shape or form, knowing that that is my internal defense against illness, mm-hmm. you know, cancer or or otherwise. And so, uh, which is also another reason I, I kind of reached out uh, to integrative oncologist, um, again, just, just any kind of alternative forms of, of therapy and modalities that, you know, preserve my, um, my immune system. So I made a decision to not 
uh, do chemotherapy, but to do immunotherapy only. Mm -hmm. And when I originally, you know, kind of brought that to my, my oncologist, he was not hesitant, you know, they were all very supportive of my decision, but they just don't know, Mm. you know what I mean? They didn't know how that would work. It could take six to eight weeks. Uh, I had a large lesion on my chest that in a two month time frame had had grown from the size of a pea to basically golf ball size lesion on my chest. Mm. Um, And so it it was just all very unknown and up in the air. So, but I was like, well, chemo is always there for me, right? But I'm not going to start off that way. And so very fortunately, knock on wood, I have responded very well to the immunotherapy. It's been very, very good in maintaining it, but I, I, I still have, you know, cancer cancer in my body, but no new hot spots. And, and I understand that kind of like COVID and, and other viruses, they can mutate and, you know, the treatment may not work. But um, as, as of right now, right today, I've responded very well and it's working very well for me. So very happy about that. Oh, well, I'm so happy about that for you. And I know that you mentioned this existential distress um, that has one of the reasons that led you to the Ames Institute and just being open to this idea of psilocybin. And I want to talk about that a little bit more, just that existential distress. Can you just describe what that means to you? Yeah, it means, for me, it's coming to terms with a guarantee, I guess, in our life, right? Like death is the only 100% guaranteed thing that's going to occur. Mm -hmm. However, it is something that most people, including myself, um, to a degree, you know, really fear, you know, we're really frightened of it. We, we avoid it. We don't talk about it. Um, I have a dear friend that is, um, has been a medical professional and, you know, has stated that birth and death are incredibly sacred times in Mm. somebody's life. And I want to feel a deep, deep sense of peace and joy and readiness when my time does come to pass, right? So Mm -hmm. I I don't want to be anxious, uh, depressed, sad, have thoughts of suicide, have thoughts of checking out early, have thoughts of, you know, despair and um, desperation and there is no hope and... Yeah, I want to avoid all that. But that's those are the existential stresses. You know, what's going to happen to me? Am I going to be in pain? What is what is the purpose of this? Why me? Why now? Why so young? Um, name the question. <laughs> they run yeah. through your brain, right? And so the idea of psilocybin or other psychedelic medications is kind of, you know, it's, I don't want to what, what you call it, out of, out of mind experience. It takes, it takes your mind out of the equation. And it mm. is a medicine that shows great promise in relieving anxiety and depression simply because I think it, it just kind of sidesteps these existential stresses, you know, and, and it puts you in touch with this higher frequency, maybe this higher purpose, this, um, I don't know, love, the beautiful truths of energy. You know, I I think that death is basically our ultimate relief and release from any and all pain and suffering that we have experienced on the physical plane. And I believe that these psychedelic treatments provide a glimpse of that truth Mm. and that beauty and 
just, you know, an opportunity to, again, just relieve these anxieties that um, so many of us have when we think about, you know, dying and death. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. And um, I wonder, I mean, have you tried anything that's any sort of other therapy or other medications that have come even close to helping alleviate some of these fears and, you know, questions you're describing? I'll be honest with you. I've been doing therapy for quite a number of years, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Just, just trying to find my way prior to even having a cancer diagnosis. Um, And really it's kind of this culmination of all of them. And it's just been really more of a personal journey, you know, through kind of energy therapies, uh, hypnotherapy, traditional psychiatry, psychologist, therapist. Um, Mm -hmm. And then more recently, I have, when I was introduced to the Ames Institute, I have participated in ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, Mm. which is, was kind of my first introduction um, on a, in a medical environment to these substances that kind of induce these out of, out of mind, out of body experiences and Mm -hmm. put you in touch with um, just a higher, a higher thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, so once you knew that gaining access to psilocybin would involve a lawsuit against the DEA, did you ever think to pursue psilocybin on your own or just in the shadows um, or a clinical trial, trying to find a clinical trial that you could maybe enter? Uh, no, actually, I wasn't even aware that these right to lo- try laws existed. And as soon as I did, it was just this beautiful beacon of light, this open door that allows not only patients, well, in this specific case, patients, terminally ill patients, but um and an opportunity to step outside of the shadows, to step outside of these stigmas and these criminalized medicines that actually clinically prove really, really promising medical benefit. And, um, and so it's like, ah, oh, I don't have to stay in the shadows, you know, Mm. um, there, there's actual legal legislation on the books, you know, that, that, um, uh, is allowing, you know, for this access. And I mean, nobody wants to skulk around in the shadows. Nobody wants to potentially put their personal well-being at harm or have to, you know, question where the medicine's coming from, question the mindset of, of who's providing it. You know, the whole idea is that, um, and when it comes to psilocybin, I know a huge piece of clinical trials, they, they discuss, you know, set and setting, right? What, what the mindset and intention of, what the mindset and intention is of both the patient as well as the, the medical professional, but also the setting and providing a safe, secure, you know, supervised, professionally medically supervised setting where a patient feels safe, comfortable, and at ease with trying this kind of medication when you keep it in the shadows or it's illegal and I have to obtain it you know from the underground or the back alleys it 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 kind of blows those pieces of the pie away I guess right um where my setting is off-centered because I I have to knowingly kind of sneak around and and do something that I know is quote-unquote illegal and 
as well as as not being able to do it under the guidance of my medical professional, you know, for fear of persecution or prosecution. Um, and as it relates to clinical trials, uh, I, I, I don't have anything against that per se, but again, I don't have time. I mean, that's the whole point with these laws and terminal patients and even with your podcast, you know, you're talking six months or less to live. I don't have time. Uh, it just was not acceptable. You know, um, it, that would have involved at for well, a, I, I don't even know if I'd qualify. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, B, uh, my understanding at the time was there were trials, but they were across the country, um, in Baltimore, you know, mm. I, I get treatment every two weeks. I, I didn't, you know, the idea of removing myself from my family, my support system, my home state to go be part of a, a trial, but also in a sense, in in being able to exercise my rights under these right to try laws, I, I am an example and, and a uh, a patient that can be studied, observed and recorded, I guess, you know, and, and mm-hmm. really still be part of the process of, okay, is this effective? And, and, but outside of this clinical, very restrictive, rigid, long, painful process, um, you know, of FDA approval, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying as a terminally ill patient, I don't have that time. You know, when you're facing death in this, mm-hmm. in this like limited restricted timeline of life, what's the harm? You know, what's the harm in my choosing to try something that could potentially, um, you know, help again, alleviate the anxiety and the depression. And, and to be honest, anything that stands in my way is an obstacle, which right now, of course, the Drug Enforcement Administration is doing, frankly, just proliferates my pain and suffering. And, um, you know, them, suggesting that I be part of a clinical trial. It's just, it's, it seems to me to be a ridiculously uh, unnecessary exhaustion of resources, you know, an exhaustion of my time, energy, and patience as a patient, um, as well as money, uh, resources, both from the Philippines, side of, you know, trying to support these laws and put them through. And even on the taxpayer dollar side, you know, I mean, I'm like, our tax dollars are going to fight healing and helping terminally ill patients. And it just, it just blows me away. Mm -hmm. Well, suing the DEA is, is pretty radical. Um, And so I just love to hear about you wanting to join the case and and what does it mean to you to be a part of it? I am honored. I am honored that I was invited mm-hmm. uh, to participate. I know that facing death and facing a terminal illness can be just incredibly overwhelming uh, as a patient and uh, to be able to have access and options and choices to therapies that have been shown to have really, really great promise in alleviating depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation that is often um, accompanied with inpatients that have received terminal diagnoses. And so uh, it's just, uh, to me, it's it's a first of its kind case. And I am a very vocal, open, individual and I just really not only want access and to have this door open for me um, but also for other patients you know my autonomy to be able to 
make my own decisions, make my own choices, and not have promising options blocked by external forces, in particular, my government, is just so important to me. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's, what we, you know, that's to me the, the root of democracy. So I'm just, I'm just honored to be a part of it and, and be a voice for patients that may not feel comfortable speaking up on their own behalf. And we're in pain and suffering across the board, right? And, and not yeah. just terminally ill patients, but just, I want to heal that. I'm, I'm looking for relief, release, healing of any and all wounds that people, um, you know, suffer. And I'm, I'm hoping that this case in particular as it relates to terminally ill patients, as it relates to right to try laws, will be one integral, important step towards healing, uh, being able to use these medicines that frankly have been studied since the 1950s, mm-hmm. have shown great promise, and uh, and just, yeah, turn, turn the tide of, of the stigmas. So yeah, I'm just looking to help and heal people and Wow. Well, I think what you're doing takes a lot of courage and very giving of your time and your energy to be a part of this. And knowing that if you win, I mean, you could create a pathway for others to access psilocybin and really help people in ways that are probably hard to imagine right now. Um, Would you say that you've always been this way? I know you said you've always been vocal and open, but having this courage and sort of wanting to be a part of something really big, or is that new since your terminal diagnosis? Uh, yeah, I'm going to say that's new. <laughs> I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm like, I am not a, uh, I don't know. I like to tell people, I mean, I mean very, uh, I am very open and honest, but it, but in a very, uh, typically, I guess, one-on-one basis, you know what uh-huh. I mean? Like with, with my inner tribe, with the people that, you know, but, uh, but, but to be open and, and outward on a collective level is a definitely a new, it's a new ball game for me. I'm not really necessarily, I'm not really like a center stage kind of person. I'm more, I just want to support the team. And I mean, it's exciting now to be part of something kind of so big and, and it's really taken on uh, a deeper kind of meaning and, and greater, scope as the months have gone on you know when I was initially invited I was like oh oh, sure you know and and now I'm like oh geez (laughs) this is kind of a big deal you know (laughs) and uh wow all right well and and truly I mean I mean my understanding and in speaking with you know Catherine the lead lead attorney on the case uh you know if we get a favorable outcome I mean I mean this what we're having to go through, uh, you know, with this legal um, lawsuit, uh, hopefully no other patient would have to do that. So I'm all about it. Mm. You know, I'm all about knocking down barriers, overcoming obstacles and keeping doors open. You know, Mm -hmm. that's, that's what it's about for me. So. So if putting yourself out there in this really big, really collective and public way doesn't come naturally to you, I'm curious, how did you get yourself to do it? Autonomy, straight and simple. As a patient specifically and an individual generally speaking, making my own choices and decisions over my medical care, treatment, and personal well-being is so vitally important and sacred to me. And 
not just for me, for any and everyone. You know, that this is an advocacy effort and it provided me an opportunity to fight not only for my own autonomy, my own rights to choose and make my own decisions, but for that of others as well. So it really, really was was a no-brainer. I mean, there there's certain things that I will fight <laughs> tooth and nail uh, if I consider them to be right. And I inherently think it is so, so wrong for government agencies or anybody outside of myself to try to force my hand and make my decisions and do so by limiting my options, you know, that I know are out there. Well, I think you're, you're very brave. Um, so I'm wondering how have you viewed the this prognosis, the terminal diagnosis that you have? How has it changed the way you want to live? I mean, does your life have a different meaning now? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. You know, when you ask if it has a different meaning, I think what, and not just the case, but but everything that I've experienced in the last few years as, as perhaps being really, really painful and um devastating in some respects, it is really all of these painful moments have really provided just straight up meaning to my life, you know, where leading up to all these challenges, uh, I was just kind of seeking and searching and what am I doing and who am I and, and these very, like I said, deeply painful, you know, experiences put me face to face with meaning, you know, and the meaning being life is really beautiful. And I am so grateful and so fortunate and that I am surrounded by so many people, friends, family, um, even people that I've, I've come now in contact with through medical professionals or even yourself, you know, through media contacts, et cetera, um, that really care in supporting and, and, healing, you know, all these, Mm. these things that, that hurt humanity, you know, and, and whether you're terminally ill patient or not, you know, so I, I just, I just see this, this, ah, the meaning of life is just to be truly whole and connected as one and, and life is intricately, intricately wound together. And what affects me affects you, it affects my kids, it affects, all life on this planet. And so it's just really, yeah, it's just really provided a lot of clarity and just straight up meaning, you know, that, that life is love and, and, and that we do have purpose and there is beauty and, and, you know, the, the pain and suffering are just ginormal life lessons. And so what am I here to learn and how am I here to grow from it? So in that respect, I'm, I feel grateful, uh, and, and fortunate to, just kind of be diving in and doing the work. Um, as far as life, you know, you asked how it changed and how, how it's changed, how I want to live. It's really, really put things in a perspective of just being very present, literally mm. day by day. Um, you know, I've, I've come to realize that uh, I, have, I have no control over, <laughs> you know, stuff. And, uh, you know, I might have plans, but plans change and to be very adaptable and very um, just really detached from any future outcome, 
you know, even with regards to this case, I don't know how it's going to turn out. You know, we could get a positive, you know, um, uh, ruling, you know, from the judges. But even with that, it could be appealed, you know, it could drag on. Um, I have to detach from that, you know, and I just have to, to be very present and just very intentional and open and honest with with why I'm a part of this case, uh, why I'm doing it, what it means for me, what it means for others. And in doing so, it just helps keep me really, really balanced and grounded and um, present. Aaron's ability to think about being detached to the outcome of the case seems really insightful and healthy. But what if they win? What if the court agrees that patients like Aaron should have access to psilocybin under the right to try laws? If the court agrees, that's Catherine Tucker again. Then the ultimate upshot will be that patients like Aaron will be able to have psilocybin therapy through their clinicians, like Dr. Agarwal, um, who are knowledgeable about and willing to provide that therapy. And that, of course, is the goal of the case. And it's really important because we've done a lot of progress, made a lot of progress over the last 30 years in improving end-of-life care and expanding the options available to patients with terminal illness. But a notable gap in the palliative care toolbox has been to add an effective tool for release relief of non-physical suffering. And that's what psilocybin therapy offers. Thank you so much to Aaron, Dr. Agarwal, and Catherine for talking with me and for advocating for reducing suffering around end of life. As Aaron said, life is intricately wound together. If the outcome of this case is favorable, it doesn't just affect Aaron. It could affect you, or me, or someone else we care about. I love things like that. Things that may have a wide-reaching positive ripple effect. Because the reality is, we will all die. And some of us, are more fearful of that fact than others. Aaron, I hope the end of your life is full mostly of love and connectedness, more so than fear. And as always, I want to take a moment to thank my listeners. You have so many podcasts to listen to, and it means the world to me that you're choosing to listen to this one. If you like what you've been hearing, I'd love for you to give six months or less a quick rating in Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the podcast and hear the stories of the people I interview. I'm Alexandra, and this is Six Months or Less. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>